It's Monday, May the 24th, 2021. More than 1.6 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we'll focus on the Asia-Pacific region and ask how the countries that took a zero-COVID approach to the pandemic are faring today. Hi, Natasha. How are you? What have you been up to the past few days? Well, I'm trying to digest the news that uh, India is not going to export vaccine um, till the end of the year. Uh, we don't know exactly when it will resume exports, but obviously that's going to have a real knock-on impact on other countries. That is very serious. Um, joining us also today is Edward Carr, The Economist Deputy Editor. Ed, it's good to have you back. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, Alok. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Um, Ed, there were times during this pandemic when I thought to myself, I'd love to be in one of the countries in Asia or Australasia where the numbers are low and life seems relatively normal. Have you ever felt the same? Well, actually, my sister lives in Australia and I've been following her pandemic. When They've had the odd lockdown, but it hasn't been for very long. And uh, the problem is we can't visit them. And now it looks like they're going to be sort of borders are going to be pretty much shut through till 2022. And I'm starting to think, well, they've had a, a great crisis so far, but how do they get out of it? And I think that's that's the question that interests me. Well, that's exactly what we will be discussing throughout this show. When the pandemic first hit, countries in the Asia-Pacific region leapt into action. With swift measures such as lockdowns, mask mandates, and crucially, the tightening of borders, they tried to not merely suppress the coronavirus, but to eliminate it. This zero-COVID strategy meant that places like Taiwan, Vietnam and New Zealand kept infection and death rates low. Hong Kong has so far had just over 200 deaths. Walk around the city today and the streets are teeming with people. Restaurants and bars are packed. But how can these zero-COVID havens open up to the rest of the world? Day in a life uh, in the last 18 months has been a bit of a roller coaster that tracks the epidemic trajectories and the different waves Hong Kong has had of COVID-19 and also, of course, of our neighbours. Professor Gabriel Lung is Dean of Medicine at the University of Hong Kong. An infectious disease epidemiologist by training, he's one of Asia's leading public health academics. COVID actually tracks absolutely with the degree of population mixing. And uh, so that's really been a story of Hong Kong's epidemic waves since January 2020. A number of places in the Asia-Pacific region, including Hong Kong, have managed to keep outbreaks quite small, keep case numbers low. Can you just explain what the reasons for that success have been? Well, I think that 
A zero COVID strategy has been the mainstay policy response for much of East Asia, including Australasia. And I think that's really what's been accounting for the relatively lower burden in terms of both the number of reported cases and the corollaries of hospitalizations and deaths. But I hasten to add that that has now become a little bit of our own conundrum in a way that it has tracked quite positively with vaccination coverage, i.e. we've also had relatively low coverage, not for lack of access to vaccines, but I think to a large degree, uh, because we've been so successful in keeping the pandemic at bay compared to, say, the West, that vaccine hesitancy has been more of an issue in this part of the world than elsewhere. Let's explore that a bit further. Many countries with zero COVID strategies that have kept case numbers low are having the same problems as Hong Kong in terms of trying to persuade people to take vaccines. I wonder, obviously, if the number of people vaccinated stays low, it's going to be hard to reopen borders and economies, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that you are going to see that, especially after the summer, when people will sort of experience a second summer of closed borders compared to their counterparts in the West, which, barring any unforeseen catastrophe, I suspect are going to be back to a large proportion of pre-COVID normal. And so that's really us becoming a victim of our own initial success. So the success in controlling COVID for much of 2020 is becoming, you know, how do we get ourselves out from keeping borders closed uh, or effectively closed because of very, very strict quarantine regimes? Vaccination is the only way out. COVID is not going to go away. This is not SARS. Uh, SARS-2 and SARS-1 are very, very different in terms of behavior. SARS-2 is going to stay and it looks as if it's going to become endemic. How does that strategy fit with the impetus in places like Hong Kong and Singapore to have essentially an elimination of the virus? I mean, you're talking about the virus becoming endemic, which I think many other countries in the world are too. Does that mean that we're not getting rid of the virus in your part of the world? I don't think we're getting rid of the virus in any part of the world, including mine. And because it is not going away, the only way that we can stop infection or at least stop serious consequences of infection is through vaccination. And that has been patently obvious to most of the scientific community for a long time now. But it does take time for it to be appreciated at a popular level. And I think that some of it at least needs to be experientially learned as opposed to passively received from government or expert diktats. Natasha, could you just help us understand which countries have had COVID elimination policies, these zero COVID strategies, and what does it actually involve? As far as I'm aware, there are about 11 countries. So that would be China, Australia, Cambodia, Iceland, New Zealand, Taiwan, 
Vietnam, Japan, Korea, Laos, and Thailand. And essentially, it means that you eliminate the virus where you have it in the country. You test, you trace contacts, and you test them. And you have very strict border controls. And if you shut down early, as these countries did, then um, you can keep the cases down to a number where elimination is possible. But if you allow cases to get beyond a certain level, then you you can't control it with things like testing and tracing. Um, Ed, can you just give us a sense of how successful these zero COVID approaches have been? I mean, not only public health-wise, but from an economics point of view. I think they've been pretty successful uh, in their own terms, definitely. I mean, there was a review of the literature recently in, in The Lancet where they looked at five of the countries that Natasha mentioned, Australia, New Zealand, Iceland, Japan and South Korea. And um, they compared those countries with other the rest of the OECD and, and deaths were something like 25 times lower. But the economy did better too. The economy consistently outperformed the economies of those countries that had tried to mitigate the disease. And because there wasn't so much disease around, lockdowns were less severe as well. So I think on every sense, it was better. But you you have reached this, this kind of weird situation where now you've got to adjust to the world as it is with an endemic disease. And that adjustment is politically tricky and, and also tricky in terms of public health. I think the other thing that's worth saying is if you take all those countries as a whole and compare them to Europe, by the end of last year, their GDP was back where it was at 2019 levels. So there's a six-point gap in difference. And that gap's going to remain for some time to come if you compare Europe. But at some point, Europe is going to recover. And as Gabrielle said, people are going to start traveling. And that's where countries are going to face really difficult questions. One other thing strikes me is, you know, we, we talk about these policies as, as if they're optional and it's much easier for some countries to do than others. I mean, you know, uh, New Zealand is probably the best example of a place where if you want to try and run away from very nasty things and disease, New Zealand's quite a good place to go, actually. Uh, much harder if you're in the middle of Europe, um, you know, lots of people coming in, in and out. I'm not sure that by the time the disease was really identified as spreading much in Europe, it was possible, or it was ever possible for kind of Belgium or the Netherlands to practice a sort of New Zealand zero COVID strategy. Zero COVID is always a way of isolating yourself uh, as a country from the rest of the world to sort of stop the pandemic. And I think the theme of this episode, as we discuss it, will be about how these countries open up again. And it's going to be very tricky for all of them involved. Yeah, what strikes me is that the sort of appetite for lockdowns and strict measures is really quite big. I mean, people seem to find it reassuring. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, is really popular. She did incredibly well in the elections that happened mid-pandemic and is highly regarded in the country for having kept the disease out. And it's actually leaders where the disease runs out of control who seem to suffer. And, And people who are deemed to have lifted lockdowns too soon or imposed them too late. So libertarians would find this very troubling, but there seems to be a taste for kind of harsh measures. Okay, well, now comes the hard part for many of these countries, which is how do you ease back into the rest of the world, which does have the virus spreading and and and, and all of that. And um, Professor Lung, at the end of our conversation, talked about vaccine hesitancy in Hong Kong and in places all over the um, Asia Pacific. Natasha, was this inevitable? 
When you have a new vaccine, there's always going to be some hesitancy about taking it. And so what we're seeing is that in countries where there's a COVID outbreak, this has provided a strong impetus to get this new vaccine. And the reverse is always going to be the case. If there are no active cases, you're going to have to work really hard to convince people they need this new vaccine. Also, when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, we often talk about fear of, you know, side effects and that maybe there'll be some concern about the vaccine. But hesitancy can be as simple as you thinking, well, shall I go and get my vaccine this afternoon? Oh, do you know what? I've got a bit of work I need to do. And it may be that you're perfectly happy to take the vaccine if somebody came and gave it to you. Or it may be that you don't have the time to be sick for a day. It's actually something I'm hearing in London as well. I know that as the vaccination programme gets into people below 35 and below 30, even a lot of people seem to be saying, oh, well, I, I just can't be bothered getting ill for a day or, you know, I don't want to take the day off work or, or whatever else. And it's a difficulty here as well. And as we'll see later in the programme, uh, hesitancy can take many other forms as well in other parts of the world. Okay, thank you both very much. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash the jab pod. A story that caught my attention recently was about parenting during the pandemic. Now, it's no doubt that the whole world has had a bad time in the past year, and parents in particular, not only having to deal with working from home with their children in the picture, but this piece looked at the social and economic impacts on parents uh, going forward after the pandemic has come to an end. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash the jab pod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. After further consultation with the National Security Committee uh, this afternoon, uh, tonight we will be resolving uh, to move to a position where a travel ban will be placed on all non-residents, non-Australian citizens coming to Australia, and that will be in place... From- on the 19th of March 2020, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced a hardening of his country's border in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Days later, the government banned Australians from travelling abroad. The reason was simple. We now have around 80% of the cases we have in Australia uh, that are either a result of someone who has contracted the virus overseas or someone who has had a direct contact uh, with someone who has returned from overseas. The policy worked. In total, Australia has had fewer than 30,000 cases of COVID-19 and just over 900 deaths. But a year later, the borders are still shut and they're likely to remain sealed for a while yet. Natasha, you've been speaking to someone who's had no choice but to follow all of this on the ground in Australia. Yeah, I had a great chat with Nell Whitehead, who's The Economist's correspondent in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, She's based in Sydney, and she told me that everyday life, within Australia at least, is almost back to normal. Life is kind of like the before times, so the bars are pretty full. You've got loads of people who are crammed around tiny tables, no masks. People can sing inside, they can dance inside, and that's because Australia's pretty much eliminated COVID. And how has Australia been able to do this? 
There's a few things. We've had lockdowns across whole cities. Every time a single case has slipped out, states have responded very, very quickly. They've kind of slam closed the borders on each other, which has stopped transmission across state lines. But none of that would have worked if it wasn't an island, which hadn't completely cut itself off from the rest of the world. So the borders were closed back last March. They're closed to everyone except for citizens and permanent residents. And even for them, it's pretty tough to get back in because there are huge queues to get through hotel quarantine and to get on a flight back. I've had incredibly tough rules on people trying to get back from the latest outbreak in India, you know, not just flight bans, but threats of criminal charges and fines on people who are trying to escape Three people so far have died there, these Australian passport holders. The government said this month the borders will be closed until the middle of 2022. And how do the public feel that the government has handled the pandemic? In general, the polls say again and again that the public's incredibly supportive. And the same on the border closures specifically. All the polls say that people are very happy with the idea of keeping outsiders out for as long as it takes. I've been speaking to some people in Sydney about this, and that was generally what they have said to me. Though, of course, they don't want to stay in a bunker forever. Yeah, I think it's a good idea up until, you know, it is safe to do so. Um, but I think at some point they have to start easing back into it, just for the economy and that sort of thing. Yeah. Although, having said that, I did meet some people in Sydney who were unhappy about the policy um, because they wanted to be able to get overseas to see their families. Regarding the borders, I'm, I'm really angry about that because I have a family back home, so I didn't see them for two years. A third of Australians were born overseas, so you're talking about a lot of people who have been separated by the border closures. Other countries around the world really see vaccines as the key to returning society to normal. How has the vaccination programme been going in Australia? Incredibly slowly. Um, Australia's vaccinated about 16% of the adult population so far. So I think some of the, the initial problems were logistical. The public health experts here were very critical of the government for putting too many eggs in one basket, so relying too heavily on AstraZeneca. And when the news about the blood clots started coming out, there was real panic about it here. There have been problems with getting the vaccine out as well. So for some reason, the government wanted to use GP clinics to vaccinate people. So doctors and nurses that have full-time jobs in those clinics. And it's only now that states are actually opening mass vaccination clinics that have the capacity to vaccinate thousands of people a day. The federal government says it hopes to have everybody vaccinated by the end of the year, or at least everybody that's willing to be vaccinated. But that would take it just about doubling the numbers that it's managing daily at the moment. From what I've been hearing, some people seem to be quite hesitant to get the vaccine. But then equally, there are others that are quite keen. Can you just talk me through this a little? The hesitancy is, is a big problem here. So the polls say about 30% of people are saying they're unlikely to get vaccinated. And what's weird about Australia is that number's actually rising. Of the people that I've been speaking to in Sydney, a lot do say they want it because they see it, obviously, as a, a ticket to their freedom and their ability to go overseas. Like, if we want overseas travel to open up, yeah. then I think it is crucial to, to 
get the vaccine. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And yeah. what about yourself? Yeah, same. We mind travel, so we're like, <laughs> give us a jab, please. <laughs> but people are also worried about the side effects, you know, I think especially because there's almost no risk now that you're going to die of the coronavirus. So people feel like there's more of a risk of, for example, a blood clot from an AstraZeneca vaccine than of dying of COVID, which is, is fair enough. The risk calculus is kind of different here than in countries which are worse affected. One woman said to me that she she felt like there wasn't really a rush in Australia to get vaccinated. I probably won't be um, the first person to go and get the vaccine. I don't really think there's any need to until our international borders uh, open up. And that is a pretty common feeling here. So by extending the border closures in a way, the government is taking the urgency out of the vaccination campaign. Gosh, so with the borders closed now until the middle of 2022, I mean, the question really is how sustainable is all this? There are ways that the government could start loosening restrictions. You know, one of those is travel bubbles. Australia already has a bubble since um, April with New Zealand. People can travel back and forth without quarantines. Um, the Australian government's been in talks with Singapore about potentially opening a, another bubble with them. The problem is that when you're pursuing elimination or you've achieved it, every country, you know, even the most successful Asian countries look risky. And a new outbreak in Singapore has kind of set those discussions back. There is also the potential of freeing up travel, loosening quarantine a bit for people that have been vaccinated. But, you know, I think the question is what's in it politically for the government? And the answer, I think, with such strong support for the border closures is not that much. You know, the economy in general is bearing up pretty well. And there's an election coming next year. And I, I don't think the government is going to want to risk any controversies before that happens. So having done so well, Australians are, are averse to taking on any risks with the virus. And I think there's this sort of realisation that's starting to dawn that even with vaccines, they can't keep it out entirely unless they want to stay locked away forever. Natasha, that was really interesting. How tough a spot is Australia in? Well, ironically, it doesn't feel like it's in a tough spot at all. Australians, by and large, quite happy with what's happening at the moment. There are some exceptions. But I think as we've been hearing, as we heard from Gabrielle Leong, they feel happy because in comparison with other countries, they're doing well. That comparison is not going to look so favourable as time goes on. But this is, again, it's all about perspective. Within the country, of course, they don't feel like they're in a tight spot. But globally, of course, they are. Ed? Yeah, I was struck by what happened to the boss of Virgin Australia, Jane Herdlicker, when she suggested that Australia ought to open up and a few people would die. But, you know, that was life, really. Scott Morrison immediately came in, uh, called her insensitive. And sort of politically, it's such a hard thing to do, to stand up and say, yeah, you know, some people are going to die, but it makes sense. It seems to be a, a denial of everything Australia's achieved. And yet the truth is that if Australia is going to open up, as Nell put it so well at the end, you know, stuck, if it's not going to be stuck permanently is a sort of, you know, locked away country, that is what's going to happen. And someone needs to have the courage to stand up and say it. And perhaps it will be Scott Morrison after he's been re-elected. Yeah, it seems like the politics is getting completely mixed in with public health decision making. Uh, Ed, th this idea that borders will be closed for uh, until the middle of 2022, after the election, uh, coincidentally, does that just further 
vaccine hesitancy and fuel that sort of worry? The optimist in me says it, it kind of freezes it. If Australians can look around the world and see country after country getting the kind of response from vaccines that Israel has had, maybe a whole, almost a year's experience of living with that will mean that perhaps when the moment comes, people will be more ready to be vaccinated than, than they would be today. That's the optimistic take. But, you know, you still at some point have a sort of step function of risk when you have to say to people, look, we're, we're, we're going to do something about this and, and you've got to start taking responsibility. What could the government do to try and fortify the vaccination effort, Natasha? They need to set a firm schedule for reopening and devise a strategy for reaching everyone. If they have a firm schedule for reopening, then a lot of people are going to accept their appointments that they're offered. And what we really don't want to happen is for everyone to just suddenly want a vaccine in the month before reopening begins. And I guess the huge concern I have is that Aboriginal groups are going to take longer to reach and will just get left behind. And there's a big issue of trust in the government for these groups. They've been mistreated throughout Australia's history. And if the government does not make sure that this group is fully vaccinated before they reopen, the consequences would be you know, really devastating. Um, the elders in particular have quite an important role in these Indigenous communities in terms of carrying the culture. So they're the ones who will need both convincing about vaccination so that they can convince others and also vaccinating themselves. Ed, you said earlier about the political leadership that needs to happen to admit that perhaps there's going to be a spike in cases once um, the country opens up. Are you, are you saying or do we know that if Australia does go down the road of opening up, will there be the same sorts of waves that we see elsewhere? I mean, is that the sort of level we're talking about or could it be managed in a more effective way than that? I haven't seen the modelling for Australia, but the modelling from the UK at the beginning of vaccination showed that you could have, you know, 15, 20, 30 percent of the population vaccinated and still have really quite severe waves of infection. So you have to look at the particular model. Every country is slightly different. Population densities are different and demography varies from one country to another. But yes, I, th I think there is that potential. I'd say the only other thing to bear in mind here is that treatments are improving as well. And so the inherent risk of dying from this disease is going down even if you aren't vaccinated because of improved treatments. And I, I expect that to continue over the next year. It's worth also just bearing in mind that in countries where COVID has been circulating, there is a degree of natural protection. And obviously, this protection will vary. But when you start vaccinating, you're adding to that. Now, in countries where they have not had COVID, there is not a single antibody out there against COVID. They are completely naive. And so every antibody against COVID, you have to give them through vaccination. And what this all means is there is a really steeper hill to climb and a higher hill to climb for these countries. So it means that vaccination is more important in these countries in order to reach the point where you're not having really serious consequences by allowing this virus to circulate. Okay, so just last question to you both then. What is the most important thing that the government there needs to be doing then to get through this painful phase it has to go through. It needs to rip the plaster off and it needs to say when it's going to rip the plaster off and then it needs to just get on and do it. You're advocating strong leadership yeah. from public health and government. That's the only way, is it, Ed? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think it requires 
politicians to be straight with the people. And Natasha is, is completely right about the fact that there aren't any naturally acquired antibodies to this disease. I, I think that's a, that's a quite a scary idea. On April the 25th, Bloomberg ranked Singapore as the world's best country in which to weather the pandemic, in part because it had almost no local transmission of the virus. But in the week that followed, several new clusters of coronavirus cases were identified. I think it's very important for us to understand that we are now on the knife's edge and our community cases can go either way over the next few weeks. Lawrence Wong, a minister in Singapore's COVID-19 task force, warned earlier this month of the gravity of the situation. We have a chance of getting things under control by the end of the month. But as we know from experience, it only takes one lapse or one irresponsible action for an infection to spread. It's not the only country in Southeast Asia that's seen a worrying rise in infections. Cases of COVID-19 are starting to shoot up across the region. Charlie McCann is the Economist Southeast Asia correspondent, based in Singapore. That's partly because in a number of countries, new variants of the virus have been detected. And that includes B1617, the strain first identified in India. This is a really alarming development because the region had, until very recently, been relatively untouched by the pandemic. Can you give me some examples of countries where cases are surging? New cases in Malaysia, for instance, have more than tripled in the past month, hitting a high of 6,075 cases on May 19th. Thailand's daily tally has jumped from 50 in early April to more than 3,000 a month later. Of Cambodia's 20,000-odd recorded infections, nearly 90% of those have occurred since the start of April. Vietnam is currently experiencing its worst outbreak ever, and at least eight hospitals have locked down because of the virus since May 5th. Okay, so these aren't huge numbers compared to many other countries that are seeing waves at the moment. But the worry, as you said, is that the region's fared relatively well in the pandemic so far, and that's about to change. Is that is that the concern? Yeah, absolutely. So several countries within this region were classified as zero COVID countries because of the extraordinarily low prevalence of COVID-19 there. So Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and where I am now, Singapore. So it's really unnerving to have this surge in cases, especially when we see what's happening in India. These are vulnerable populations that haven't had that much exposure to the virus. And The rollout of vaccines in general is happening very slowly. So with the exception of Singapore and Cambodia, less than 10% of the adult population in each country in the region has received a single dose. And so the other thing that everyone is really anxious about here is the role being played by these new variants in these recent outbreaks. So the B1617 variant, which was first identified in India, has appeared in Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Here in Singapore, we've now gone into a kind of mini lockdown because the government is really very concerned about the presence of the variant, how transmissible it is. And so they've closed schools, they've closed restaurants and bars. You know, having been in a, in a country which had handled the situation so well to now be plunged back into lockdown, it's, it's disappointing and really concerning. 
What's the atmosphere like in Singapore where you are? Yeah, well, you know, I'd say there's almost a sense of foreboding here in Singapore. I talked to a woman called Priscilla who was really worried about this sudden spike. And she mentioned an incident in which somebody arrived from abroad and didn't actually quarantine for the full 14 days. It's pretty worrying because, like, the cases have been going up and also because, like, we've also like, heard about how other people have, um, they've hired, like, help from overseas and um, apparently, like, their helper did not have to quarantine and stuff, which is quite worrying, yeah, which is probably why, like, the cases have been going up. Another woman I spoke to, Yvonne, said that there should have been tighter border restrictions in place to stop these new variants from getting in in the first place. Yes, I'm a bit um, also pissed off that in the first place, the government should have closed the borders earlier, much earlier, right? But she felt that as long as people stay at home, quarantine, abide by the rules, that things would be all right. So what about the sudden increase now? Uh, Why all the sudden increases, do you think? The reasons each country has lost control of the outbreak really vary. Experts blame things like these new variants, but also a combination of travel, foreign visitors and mass intermingling during festive periods. So Buddhist countries celebrated their New Year in mid-April. So that meant lots of people were traveling, rushing home to celebrate this festive period. So in Thailand, that rush of people around the country exacerbated a pre-existing cluster in Bangkok's nightclub district. And then in Cambodia, two prostitutes infected with the B117 variant that was first identified in Britain. They arrived in a private jet from Dubai in early February and promptly broke quarantine to visit clients, nightclubs and a bunch of other places too. So by mid-May, the outbreak that they had seeded had infected thousands of people and killed more than 100. The other factor that comes into the mix here is complacency. Once you're more than a year into a pandemic, it becomes really hard for people to keep on complying with these strict coronavirus measures. Charlie described there the sudden spike in cases in countries that have so far been described as zero COVID havens. I'm just struck by this idea that as soon as you let your guard down, you can see a spike in cases anywhere in the world. I mean, Ed, Ed what are the lessons there? I guess one lesson is that a zero COVID strategy is extraordinarily hard to sustain. You start coming out of it and cases can pick up really, really quickly. It'd be nice to think that there is a smooth exit. You you can sort of gradually control it. But actually, this disease is really infectious and these new variants are more infectious than any before. So I guess for me, it's the sort of slightly binary nature of zero COVID and mitigated COVID. And of course, exactly the same maxim that we've had for many weeks now uh, is that no one will be able to open up until vaccination has really spread through the population properly. Charlie was focusing on uh, countries in Southeast Asia, but further east as well in Asia, there are places seeing upticks in cases. For example, Taiwan is fighting its biggest outbreak. Um, Eds, what's going on there? They've started to limit social gatherings, close schools, you know, shut down public venues. And I think there was a degree of complacency there. I mean, hospitals stopped testing people who came in with temperatures and sort of symptoms. They stopped quarantining for China airline pilots who then came in and brought the disease with them. And the really interesting thing is that in a place where there wasn't really very much vaccination, uh, you saw these cases and a bit of worry and vaccination rates immediately picked up. 
I think illustrating that there is nothing like fear and anxiety to get people vaccinated. Same story all over the world. Is there any concern, Natasha, that any of the countries there could go the way that India's going? I mean, India's really suffering. Uh, It's much, much worse than a lot of Southeast and Eastern Asia. But is there any concern that things go that way? So I'm not worried about Singapore and Taiwan. I think they're perfectly capable of managing their COVID outbreaks. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was absolutely concerned about other countries in Southeast Asia. But if you look at what's been happening with case numbers, they have indeed mirrored India and they've had, you know, serious situations in Nepal and in other parts, you know, Pakistan, Bangladesh. But what you're actually seeing is the case numbers look like they've peaked. That's also the case for India although deaths probably haven't peaked in India. The one exception I would say to that is Malaysia. Cases are still going up there. So it looks to me, like with the exception of Malaysia, that this pulse has actually now passed through the region. And while we'll still see deaths coming in from that pulse of infections, that it looks like the worst is over there. Well, it sounds like there's a vague glimmer of optimism there. We don't want to be too optimistic about anything, given this pandemic can trick uh, all sorts of uh, clever minds. Um, Now, just before we go, are there stories that jumped out at either of you this week that you'd like to share? Uh, Yeah, I was struck by a survey by Edelman, the PR firm, who do a lot of work on trust. Um, And they found that 65% of people are still in what they call a pandemic mindset. And that was like over half the people in the UK and the US. Only 16% of people want to fly, 19% take public transport, 23% stay in hotels, and almost 70% were worried about a new outbreak. And the really interesting thing was that vaccination only improved those scores by about between three and seven percentage points. In other words, People are worried, they get vaccinated, and they're still worried. For me, during the the depths of the pandemic, the only thing I was thinking of was getting on planes and going back to reporting in real life and being in the office and things. But now that it's possible, I'm not sure I I do feel a little bit hesitant. I'm I'm kind of real life hesitant, not vaccine hesitant. Well, I mean, this has practical consequences for us at work, doesn't it? And Ed, of course, other than being our COVID czar, is also the deputy editor and has a position of responsibility. So the question I have for Ed is, how are you going to get us to all come back to the office? (laughs) Is it going to be carrot or stick? Definitely drinks, I think, is probably the answer. (laughs) You know how to appeal to our base instincts. But but it's, it is true. It is true. I mean, I think just to wind up on this, do you think it's a temporary concern? Because once you're in the water, it's nice and lovely and you can carry on as normal. You know, there have been times when when I've got together with people and you leave the house thinking, oh gosh, it's, oh, it's a bit scary. I'm out, out in the, you know, the open air. You meet people and it's fantastically good fun. You know, it's really, really nice to see people uh, in three dimensions rather than two. And I, I, I'd like to think that we're all going to have a really big party. Oh, God, that sounds great. <laughs> I think that's a promise. I think that's a promise. Put it put it on the list. That, and Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. Thanks, Alok. Thanks so much. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week. 
when we'll be talking about vaccination strategy. How important are booster shots? What are the best doses to give? And should we mix and match different vaccines?